Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today's text is going to be Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. For uh, really until we start Lent and our run-up to Easter, we're going to be just kind of doing a series of individual teachings this year. Uh, although, as I was kind of laying them out, they, they somewhat have a theme that we're going to be moving through related to humanity as the image of God and what that requires of us. Um, so we're going to begin this today with looking at Proverbs 19.17 and the ministry of mercy. As always, the verses will be up here on the screen. You can follow along. I'll be using the uh, New International Version. Hear now the word of your covenant God. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Well, as we've been saying today, uh, winter relief begins for us tomorrow. This is a major emphasis for our church every year. Uh, it's really kind of hard for a congregation our size to pull off something of this magnitude, to be honest. Um, it really takes everybody being engaged in doing this. And this is not only uh, the only thing where we're involved in reaching out to the, the homeless, the poor, uh, people in difficult situations. We do a lot of that throughout the year, actually, as a congregation. And so today I wanted to take a step back and remind ourselves, why are we involved in doing this? Why does Bay Ridge put value in serving uh, folks in our community that are oftentimes struggling? Because it's sad to say there are many congregations who do not, and then there are other congregations who do, but they do it for very different reasons than Bay Ridge would do it. So wh why are we involved in uh, Mercy Ministry? Well, I want to look at uh, a couple of things. First, the basis for Mercy Ministry. Why, why is it that we do this? Well, Proverbs 19.17, our text says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And so God is telling us here how we treat others is how we treat God himself. Notice uh, that this strange phrase, to be kind to the poor, is to lend to Yahweh. Now that's a strange saying because, of course, what does Yahweh need? Nothing. So Obviously, we couldn't literally lend to him because he has no needs whatsoever. But God is letting us know that he treats our actions towards the vulnerable as if we were doing them to Yahweh himself, to Jesus himself. And this is especially true. Notice here, it's true, really. We could expand it out and see of our treatment of humans in general, but very specifically, God says, he who is kind to the poor. So this is especially true of our treatment of the poor, the vulnerable, the outcast by society. Those who many people would not really give the time of day to, God says, if you treat them with kindness, them specifically with kindness, I count that as if you have lent to me. And, of course, the analogy there that's being carried out is if you lend something to me, what am I now responsible to do? Pay you back, okay? And God says, well, here's how you can get me in your debt, as it were. The only way that you can get Yahweh in your debt, he says, if you are kind to the poor, to the vulnerable, to those who are outcasts, God himself says, I now put myself in your debt and I will pay you back. And we'll come back to that uh, a little bit more later. But what this is teaching us then is how a person, how a family, a church, a nation treats the most vulnerable and outcast among them reveals how they view and treat God. What our view of God is, is shown not by how we treat others who are like us, or how we treat the rich and powerful, how we view God ultimately is shown by how we treat the vulnerable. 
That's what God himself is telling us in this text. Now, this principle is reiterated by Jesus himself. And I want to be clear. One of the problems that we can run into, in recent years there's been a a movement called being a red-letter Christian. Uh, Let me instruct you, that's a dumb idea because uh, how many words between Genesis 1-1 and the last verse of Revelation are Jesus' word? All of them. Are words in red more important than words in black? No, that's a dumb idea, okay? They all equally apply. It is all God's word, okay? So, but I'm going to show here that Jesus culminates this because he is the focus of Scripture. He culminates this, and he teaches the same thing is true even under the gospel. If you remember in in Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45, I'm just going to read. It's a long section that runs from verse 31 to 46. But two verses here that I'll pick out where Jesus says this. In verse 40, he says, The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then in verse 45, he says, He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, Jesus here is telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in this parable, the, both the sheep and the goats come before Jesus, and both of them are being uh, responded to by the king, Jesus himself sitting on the throne. And the king is saying, you know, look, you either are blessed or you are cursed. You, you are going to be entering in or being cast out based on how you treated me. And both of them say, well, Lord, I, I didn't actually do anything towards you. And in both cases, the king said, oh, but you did. You did. And here's how you did. When you fed the poor, the sick, those who were in prison, those who were outcast, when you cared for them, you did it for me. And when you did not care for the poor, the sick, the vulnerable, those who were in prison, you did not do it for me. And so notice here the same principle we've seen in Proverbs 19:17 that it is our treatment of other human beings that God counts as our treatment of him and specifically it is the least of these is Jesus's terms it's the poor is the term in Proverbs and as you expand it out through scripture we'll see it really deals with anyone who is in a vulnerable situation those who are poor who are sick who are imprisoned who are outcast by society, who tend to fall outside the care of society. And so Jesus is reiterating this point. Now, the reason that underlies both Proverbs and Jesus' treatment of this is because of what's known as the imago dei, or the image of God. Why this is true is because every human being is the very image of God. And this is a theme we will kind of unpack over several weeks here. Every human being is made in God's image. And what that means is every human being inherently is of incredible worth. Not of worth because of what they do, not of worth because of what they bring to society or how society views them or their status or anything else. Simply because they are the image of God, you cannot increase your worth beyond that. Whatever else you do doesn't make you any more the image of God. Whatever else you do does not give you any more worth because there is nothing of more worth in the universe outside of God himself than being the image of God. And so what this means for us today is when we mistreat or even simply ignore the vulnerable, the poor, the outcast, the sick, despised ethnic or religious groups, what we are doing is showing contempt for the image of God. Because every human being, regardless of anything else, bears the image of God. If I am an atheist who denies that God exists, I'm still the image of God. If I am worshiping a false god, I am still the image of God. If I have squandered everything I've been given and gotten myself in trouble, I am still the image 
of God. A human being cannot cease to be the image of God. And so because of that, how we treat other human beings, God says, well, it's how you're treating me because it is my image. Now, I'm going to unpack this a little bit further on this basis to show us how important this was because we looked at Proverbs and we looked at Jesus' teaching, but the reason Jesus is doing it is because kindness to the poor is a major part of God's law. When you look at God's law in the Old Testament, there is a huge, major stream that runs through it where God says you must care for the poor and the vulnerable. This began with the fact that the poor had to be given proper wages each and every day. When they worked, they had to be given their wages and they had to be given them every single day because they needed them. You couldn't withhold them because that put them a little bit more in your debt. You couldn't make sure they come back tomorrow. God said you can't do that. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, and most of these passages are repeated multiple times. I'll just pick one out. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15 say, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So notice what God says here. The poor, and he says, whether they're an Israelite or they're an aliens come from another country, it doesn't matter who they are, you have to treat them carefully simply because they're poor. And so it does not matter whatever status they've got, whether they're a citizen of your country or not, whether they are part of the covenant people or not, any of that, you treat them properly. You cannot take advantage of them. They have to be given their proper wage each day. And notice God gives this stern warning. He says, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, know this, it is sin. I will hold you accountable for what you're doing. You can give me whatever reasons you want. You can pass whatever other laws you want. It does not matter. I will hold you accountable. And in fact, if you want to get a key understanding of the prophets, just pick up and read the prophets. You will find them railing against this very transgression over and over and over again. If you want a good example, just read the book of Amos. It is central to God's complaint against Israel is you are mistreating the poor. And you're doing it so that you can keep getting more and more and more wealthy. You've rigged the game so that you keep getting better and the poor keep getting put down and I am angry, is what Yahweh says. Now, it goes on. It's not only that law. God said, here's what happens even as you go about your business, which was largely agriculture. Crops had to be left for the poor to harvest. Listen to how radical this is and imagine if we tried to enact such a law today. God says in uh, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, so this is your own private property, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Now, notice here, that you're not allowed to glean all the way to the edge. You can't go to the very edge of your fields. You have to leave the edges all the way around simply so the poor can come in to what you own, what you have planted, what you have fertilized, what you have pruned, what you have cared for. You have to leave it for the poor just to pick up and take because that's the way we work it today, right? Isn't that what we say? Well, of course I did all that work. They have a right to it. Who, who says they do? Everybody's quiet. Who says they have a right to it? Yahweh does. Because you cannot do that. Now, note you, you also can't go over the field a second time. When you went through the first time, there are always things left. And God says, and you leave them. You do not go back a second time and you not only don't go, the stuff on the air, very outside, that's not to be touched at all. 
And then when you go through once, there's always things that are missed, and then there are things that weren't quite ripe. And God says, and that's okay. They will ripen later, and the poor will go out and pick those things, and you don't go over. Now, consider this. This Old Testament law against harvesting twice to the edge of the field is the opposite of our modern quest to squeeze out every drop. But our industrial efficiency creates spiritual and material poverty. Nobody would set up a business following this rule. What are we about? Get as efficient as you can, squeeze out every drop. Don't go over it twice. They would say, why are you so inefficient? Go over it 10 times. And then at the end of it, you give just a little bit to make yourself feel good about doing some charity. God says you can't do that. Can't go over twice, can't go to the edge, got to leave it. The entire system, let me go ahead and tell you, is inefficient because God's not that concerned with efficiency. He's more concerned that we not develop spiritual poverty by having that attitude towards stuff. Now, that's not even the end. Notice there, that, uh, and, and here's a little clue when you're reading. Whenever God gives a command, who gave the command? God. But when he finishes by saying, I am the Lord your God, he's saying you better sit up and pay attention because I, I can't, this is like God taking the oath, okay? There's nothing higher than God just speaking it to us, but when he, he's in essence stomping his foot, listen up, pay attention, this is serious, and here's what's serious, this is the way that you're conducted. So you've already got to pay the laborer every day when they're harvesting for you, and then you've got to purposely leave stuff so that after you've paid them, they can come back and get it for free after all your work was done, and then as if that's not enough, God says, well, I've still got more regarding this to make sure they're taken care of, and that's the Sabbath year. So we read in Exodus 23, and we can read about this many times, Exodus 23, 10 and 11, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may get food from it, uh, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So notice here, you plant your crops, and as you work them during the six days, you take care of the poor, and you make sure you pay them their proper wage every day. After all of the labor you have done, you are required to leave stuff behind for them to get. And you may only work them six days a week, I might add. The seventh day, the Sabbath law requires they do not have to work. They're conferred. Not even your animals. Nobody can work. And then God says, every, after six years of doing this, where you harvest as noted above caring for the poor, in the seventh year, you're not allowed to work it at all. You're going to let it grow up naturally. And when it grows up naturally, you're doing a couple of things. What's happening is the land's getting to rest. Now, what do we do? Do we do this? Do we let the land rest? No, we create fertilizer, and we will squeeze it. But I'll warn you, God, when they, when, when they went into exile, how long was Israel in exile in Babylon? 70 years. Does anybody remember why it's 70 years? Because God said, for 490, you didn't let the land rest and it's going to get its Sabbath. One way or another, it's going to get its Sabbath. And so he does that. But not only that, how am I going to get food? If I'm the wealthy landowner that year, how am I going to get my food? I have to go out and pick it myself. So I'm now out with my day laborer who I had paid the previous year. So picture this. Bill Gates is out there next to me digging in the dirt getting his stuff and food because it's a Sabbath year. And the wild animals come in, and what do we not do? We, we don't go out there and shoot them, put fences, prevent them. We allow them, even the animals, to participate. It puts everybody on an equal footing in that year. This is exactly how we do it here in America, right? Does this sound very different than the way we approach this? And I remind you, this is God's law. All of this 
was instituted for how God's people were to live. Now, there's not only that. God says, okay, let's assume that one of these poor laborers, one of your fellow Israelites is so poor, they have to sell themselves to you as a slave because they just can't make it. Then what, what are the stipulations for how you do that? Well, we're told in Deuteronomy 15, 12 to 14, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. So it doesn't matter. You can't say, well, I don't think I got enough out of the last six years. What does God say? Doesn't matter. Seventh year, they go free. And when they go free, how do you send them away? You send them away full. And notice he says here that it is, you release him, you don't send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock. You got to give him meat, which was scarce. From your threshing floor, you're going to give him grain and seeds so that he can begin to plant and grow on his own. And from your wine press, you're going to give him wine. In other words, this guy is stocked for a party and a celebration. And you're going to do this, and you're going to do it liberally, and this had better be your heart towards the poor among you. The person who had fallen into such poverty that they had to sell themselves to you as a slave, this is how you treat them, because I have blessed you. Go and be a blessing to others. Now, all of this culminated, and I won't even take the time to do it, but all of it culminates in the year of Jubilee. After you've done all these things, you pay them every day, you give them every seventh day off, you make sure you don't glean to the edge of the field. They get to go through and they get to pick for free. Every seven years, you set the Israelite slaves free. Every seventh year, you have to go out and just harvest your crops along with everybody else. You leave them out there for the wild animals. After seven cycles of that, you have the year of Jubilee. And that means all slaves go free. Whether they're Hebrew or they're an alien living among you, all debts are forgiven. And all land reverts to its original owner. Doesn't matter what you've built up by your ingenuity and your hard work, in the 50th year, it goes back to the original owner. Jubilee is the culmination of the whole Sabbath system, and it was intended in part to care for the poor. In Jubilee, the slaves are set free, debts are forgiven, land is returned to the original families. It's a stopgap against generational poverty and enslavement. No matter how bad it's been, Jubilee is coming. And when Jubilee comes, everything is leveled out. All debts are forgiven, slaves are set free. It is a celebration for everyone. Now, let me ask a question. Do you think most Israelites rejoiced in this system? In fact, they ignored it. Because you know how it struck them? The same way it strikes you and me as we hear this. They didn't like it. They didn't do it. And the prophets rail against them for that. The prophet said, Sabbath, you're sitting around and all you want to do is get through the Sabbath. You think it's a burden so you can start doing business again. And so you can start working people. And on the Sabbath, you oppress the poor among you. Read Isaiah 58. And God rails against that and says, you've missed the entire point of what life is about. And you're missing the bounty in the way I've blessed you. Because you're, it's, we ignore these things and they sound so crazy. That's because we think we live in a place of scarcity. And it's not true because we have a bountiful, generous God. And we can trust you will never outbless God. You will never outgive God. But if we become the Dead Sea and we stop it up and we start hoarding and we start worrying about it, it stops the flow of blessing into us. But God says if you are willing and you just let this go and you care for others and you give yourself to them and you extend yourself for them, God says, I will bless you. You do this, you are lending to me. And if anybody will ever repay their debt, it's me. I, Yahweh, will repay my debt. You can take it to the bank. Now, the fulfillment and incarnation of all of this is Jesus. Remember when Jesus stands up, what is the first sermon he preaches? 
Luke 4, 18 to 21, we read this. Jesus has opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the, who? The poor. The poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee. Jubilee, this is it. This is God's favor has come upon us. And who has it particularly come upon? Notice, see, we want to say, well, it's the poor in spirit, right? Friends, that, that it has application, that, but that's not what it says. It may mean more than physical poverty, but it does not mean less. And it's the poor, the outcast, the prisoner, the, the blind, the oppressed. Do you think these are the people that society blessed and loved to be around? I mean, doesn't Jesus tell parables and say, you know, look, if you're throwing a party, who should you invite to your party? These people. But is that who everybody wanted to invite? No. And Jesus then, notice he goes on and he says, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sits down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. This is his sermon, and he says, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I sit here as jubilee. The year of God's favor is here. Debts are forgiven. Slaves are set free. Everything is put back the way it is. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Jubilee. Sin forgiven. Debt forgiven. Slaves set free. Poor cared for. And God says, now you go extend that Sabbath and that Jubilee to others. The way I have given to you, you freely go and give to others. Man, and are we going to out-jubilee Jesus? Is it possible? Are we going to out-bless from how he blesses us? It's not even possible. Now, that leads, if, if this is all true, what is the results of mercy ministry? That was all the basis, but what's the outcome? Well, if we go back to our text, we see what it is, and it's what we've kind of been building along, which is God cares for those who care for the poor and needy. Proverbs 19, 17. He was kind to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will reward him. He will pay him back for what he has done. The word reward usually it means reward or wages in Hebrew. God promises to reward those who care for the poor. God says, you've put me in your debt, and I will pay you back. So what this means is God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who help others. Okay, what's the great American proverb? God helps those who help themselves, right? Does that sound at all like Proverbs 19, 17? Now, I know I'm stepping on toes here because I, I like America too, okay? And I've been raised here. But this is where we need to understand when sometimes our mind is shaped by things that are not biblical. There is no passage anywhere that has that proverb, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who admit they're helpless, and he leaves the others to fend for themselves. And God helps those who will extend themselves to help others. And God says, I now will give myself over to you. And this is a principle that runs again throughout Scripture. I'm just going to run up several verses so we can see this over and over and over again. Psalm 41.1, blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. How many of you in here ever find yourself in time of trouble? How would you like to know that you have God, you have a get out of jail free card with God? Well, God says here's an easy way to do that. You extend yourselves to help the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, and when you're in trouble, I am there. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty five: A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. God's saying, I've just built this principle in. Proverbs 14, 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Now notice here, this is that sense of parallelism that's going on. So according to this, the opposite of being despised is being kind. The opposite of sinning is being blessed. And so who is my neighbor in this? The needy. 
Sound like maybe the Good Samaritan parable? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, I'll give you a parable to tell you. The Good Samaritan parable is this last verse just put out. My neighbor is not just the people I like or the people who are like me. It is the poor and the needy. And God says, if you despise them, note that you sin. But if you put yourself out, if you, are care, for, if you care for them, you will be blessed. I will see to it. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 and verse 11. We've heard verses 6 and 7 before. And I'll explain the context in a second. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Who's heard those verses before? We quote these to talk about giving and all of that. Well, in verse 11, I'll just jump down a couple verses. Paul says this, You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Anybody remember, what's Paul talking about here? What are you sowing into? How are you being generous? What was this collection for? For the poor. That's what the collection's for, that you can read all about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The whole two chapters is Paul taking up a collection for the poor and saying, look, based on all these verses I just read to you, plus many, many more, Paul says, you can know this. If you will sow this way, God will bless you. If you will give this way, if you will extend yourself to be to the point of being made poor, God will bless you and make you rich so that you can bless others in every circumstance. And in fact, he says the Lord Jesus himself became poor so that we might become rich. It is a deep principle in Scripture. Now, what all of this means is, let me be clear, we, some groups in the church today want to take this and say, hey, you got a financial need, you put 10 bucks in, and usually, let me be really clear, make a check out to Brett and send it to Brett, and God's going to bless you. That's not what this text teaches, okay? Let me go ahead and tell you, Brett's not the poor and vulnerable nor are the people on TV telling you that, the poor and vulnerable. Okay, that's not what this means. But I will tell you this, when God says he blesses you, it is every area of life. That blessing can be financial, it can be a life full of grace, a life full of mercy, a life full of peace. It is blessing in any and every way. So it's not I give 10 bucks and I get 100 back. I may give 10 bucks and not get any money back, but I am blessed. What I need is there. God's mercy and grace are upon me. That's what God is promising to do. And so if you want to live a life awash in the mercy and the blessing of God, then live a life devoted to being kind to the vulnerable. And God will graciously reward you. And it will be gracious because it will always go well beyond whatever you have done. You remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall find mercy. It's a principle that runs through Scripture. If I am hard-hearted towards others, how do they tend to be towards me? They just are. They're hard-hearted. Extend yourself to other people, and they will extend themselves to you. Scott mentioned at the beginning of the meeting, being at the, the funeral yesterday, I was there as well. We, we knew this family, and it was an amazing funeral because it was a family who has devoted themselves to caring for people throughout their lives. And the testimony of it was, at the end, it was standing room only at a funeral, and it had been the same way the night before at the viewing. All of these people coming back to stand up and give testimony that when I was down and I was out, I lived in this guy's basement. And when I blew it, he took me back into his basement. And he labored and he worked and he cared. That is a life well lived. And God says, if you want a life awash in my mercy, just constantly overflowing in my mercy and grace, then just extend yourself to other people. And when you're particularly the vulnerable, and when you do, I will care for you. Now, second thing, and then I'll turn to applying the word very quickly. Our actions also lead to God being praised. Not only does God reward us, it leads to praise for God, okay? When God rewards us, one of the ways is, as a believer, the chief reward I can get is seeing God receive the glory and honor he is due. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 16, remember when he's gone through the Beatitudes, this is right at the end of the Beatitudes, where he's taken all of these principles I've talked about and he's said them in many different ways. And then he says this, in the same way, <coughs> let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. God works often to open the eyes of the world to the truth of the gospel and the mercy of God. He does that through our good works. And that is our ultimate hope. Good works often are what God uses to open the eyes of people to the truth of the gospel, to the mercy of God. And the absence of good works also makes it less likely that people are going to see the truth of the gospel and respond to what God is doing. And the reality is, even if people don't in the short term, and I won't turn there, but 1 Peter 2.12 tells us, even if people don't in this life acknowledge it, on judgment day, they will stand before God and say, you know what, it was right and it was true and I knew it was right and true and you're worthy of praise and honor because look at how your people gave to the poor and the needy and I saw it with my own eyes. That's 1 Peter 2.12 where we're told to live such good lives among the pagans that on, on that final day they'll have no choice but to recognize that. At a bare minimum, people will praise God on judgment day for the good works that believers did. And there's good reason to hope they'll do it in this life, which is what our goal and our hope is. So let's apply the word and talk about this and we'll come to the Lord's table. First thing in applying the word, and this will sound a little bit different, but I believe it's appropriate, is I simply want to say thanks to this congregation. Uh, and I say that that is applying the word because many times in Paul's letters, he has thanks at the end to thank people who have been doing the very things he's talked about. And so I want to say thanks to our congregation uh, as a way of applying the word. I, I want to thank you for being willing to serve and to care for the poor and the vulnerable here and around the world. I especially want to thank our deacons who lead this effort. Uh, Karen Trosel, who's not even here today, Renee, Patrick, Teresa, Ronnie, I, I want to thank them because they lead and oversee our congregation caring for those who struggle in our own midst and those who are even outside the church caring for them. Um, I want to thank the small groups that reach out. Karen leads the small group that every month is down at Lighthouse Shelter. See, Winter Relief will come and go, but there are still going to be homeless here in the county. Even when the weather's turned good, there are homeless, and we have folks who are down there month by month by month, leading and serving and feeding and caring. We have a jail ministry that goes down every week, is down there at the detention center. And notice Jesus said specifically on that day, did you visit those who were in jail? We have a, a group that does that. We've even got people who are outside doing it, not even as part of our jail ministry. We have the Benevolence Committee that's led by Patrick, which I really, really appreciate. Uh, Grace, who's leading Winter Relief for us this year. And other people who personally volunteer for various ministries outside of BRCC, because you don't have to do it through the church. We got folks who are engaged just volunteering down at the hospital, serving in various committees and groups and ways, trying to help serve. And then there's all of us, because this week, if we just said, well, Winter Relief is kind of Grace's thing this year. Let us know how it goes, Grace. <laughs> Doesn't work. It works because almost everybody is down here all this week participating, and I want to say thank you. And I want to tell you as a shepherd, every year I come to Winter Relief, and I didn't realize that the worship team was doing a concert. I stand amazed. I had already finished my sermon. It was already done. And then I was down uh, with Tom Jr. the other day, and... Uh, chatting with him and that's when he told me that they were going to be doing that and it was another example of me saying I stand amazed at the creativity and the efforts of people in this congregation to reach out and serve we could simply throw a few cots down do a bare minimum that is not what we want to do because the way we treat the folks who are going to be here this week shows how we really view our God that's really what it boils down to. It shows how we view our God. So I want to begin by saying thanks. I am humbled to get to be part of such a congregation. Second question, or second part of this, and then we'll come to the table, is an encouragement to continue to serve the vulnerable. If you've never participated in Winter Relief, and maybe you didn't even sign up, 
I want to encourage you, find a time. Talk to Grace and come down. Find a time to come. We can always use extra people. It never hurts to have extra folks here. Come and be part of it. If, if you've never volunteered to serve at Lighthouse Shelter, serve dinner, I want to encourage you. You can check with Karen, and you can be part of that each month coming up this year, or just go down once or twice. You'll be blessed by getting to hang out and do it. And this is coming from a guy who's been down there many times. If you've never been in the jail ministry, you could see James or you can see Bobby or Greg. Rick's going down there with them now. I, again, I can tell you as a guy who volunteered for several years in the jail going in there week after week, you will be blessed. There are many other ways you can volunteer and serve. But if you do it, and you've been doing this for a while, let me remind us of this. Sometimes you grow weary because when you are ministering to the vulnerable, is it always that I give them a cup of cold water and tomorrow they are upper middle income? Does it work that way? I give them this and tomorrow they stop drinking and drugging. They get their life straight. Does it always work that way? It does not. And so the scripture tells us that if you grow weary because you wonder if it makes a difference, if you grow weary because you've been burned, God says don't give up. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, Paul says this. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So why does Paul tell the Galatians this? This is in a letter where he's been stressing to them because they've gotten into doing the law. Paul here at the end is saying, but look, I want you to understand when you do good works, that, that's good. But I do understand you might get weary. You might get worn down. But I want to encourage you, don't give up. If you go out and you plant a crop, it's a long time before harvest comes. And if you give up before the harvest, you may lose everything you did along the way. And so God says, don't be weary. Don't give up. The harvest may seem like a long time in coming. But see, our task is not to force the harvest. My task is just simply to plant the seed. It's to fertilize who gives the growth according to Scripture? God does. I'm not going to be asked on Judgment Day, how much harvest did I get? I'm going to be asked, did you sow faithfully? Did you water faithfully? Did you fertilize faithfully? And then God says, then I take care of the harvest, enter into the joy of your Lord. And so if you've grown weary, I want to encourage you, look to the Lord and let him renew your strength. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this may seem strange, but it's really, really not because this table is the table of mercy. Because the ultimate reason, I went over a lot of the law today, but we have another reason as Christians to do it, which is the gospel. We are merciful because God has shown mercy to us. And this table represents the mercy of God to us because I don't care how wealthy you are, how high your status is in the eyes of the culture around, you were poor in spirit, and so was I. You were a slave to sin and to Satan, and so was I. You and I were aliens to God's kingdom, and yet he was kind and merciful to us. And he was all of that in Christ Jesus. And so we come to the table today to celebrate and receive the mercy of God. Is it good to know that God, see, if, if God had gleaned to the edges, we'd be in trouble. And if his justice went over the field twice, he doesn't even have to go over twice. I got enough sin to, to stack to heaven. But thankfully, God goes over double in mercy, not double in judgment. Thankfully, God let Christ drink the cup of judgment for me, and what was reserved for me was the mercy of God. And so we come to the table today, and I want to encourage you, come and receive the mercy of God. If you're here and you're not a believer, 
the most important thing I can say today is the gospel. You're not saved by doing all the things I talked about. That's, that's not our hope. We do them because we have been saved. I don't do those things to get God's mercy. I do them because I've already been given God's mercy. And I can never outrun the mercy of God. And so if you are, are not a believer, I encourage you, please talk to me afterwards. This meal's not really for you until you've embraced the gospel. But the gospel is so simple. We are saved by the grace and mercy of God. We are saved by the works of Christ and not what we've done. And then as an overflow of that, we gratefully spread that to anyone and everyone around us. Uh, if you are a visitor, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate. As I said a moment ago, you do have to be a believer. For those of us who are believers, I encourage you, come, eat, and drink the mercy of God for your soul. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for your mercy that was so clearly poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that though we were aliens, you have brought us into the family of God by the broken body of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that though we were outside your covenant mercy, you have brought us under your mercy and blessing through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that though we were poor in spirit, Jesus became poor in our place so that we might receive the riches of God. Father, this morning we come at this table to receive your mercy to receive the riches of your grace, and then to spread those to the world around us. Father, we ask that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. As you get the elements, hold on to them, and we will take them together in a couple of moments, and I encourage you to meditate upon the mercy of God that is yours in Christ. Father God, as we come to this table of mercy this morning, we are ever reminded that because of our sin, we were poor, wretched, and blind. Because of our sin, we were aliens to your kingdom. We were outside of your covenant mercy. Because of the sin of our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve, and our own sin, Father, we were slaves. We were dead. And yet... Father God, you who are rich in mercy sent your son Jesus and he was broken to give us the mercy of God. Father, we are ever grateful that we are those who have been shown mercy. Oh Lord, you have been merciful to we who did not deserve it. And as we come to the table this morning, it is our profession that we would have no purchase on the mercy of God except for Jesus Christ. Take and eat. And Father, as we hold this cup of the covenant, we are reminded that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And when our poverty was so deep that it required the incarnation, the life, the sacrificial death of your own son. Father, you did not flinch. But you have swallowed up our poverty and the riches of your mercy. You have swallowed up our death with your life. And all we have and all we are and all we ever hope to be is ours by the blood of Christ. 
Father, as we come to this table, we proclaim that we are a blood-bought, a blood-kept people. And we thank you for the blood of Christ, which has secured for us all the blessings of your covenant. Take and drink. Father, as those who have been shown mercy through Jesus Christ, as those who have received your mercy fresh and new by the power of your Holy Spirit here at your table, Lord, we ask that you would empower us by that same Spirit through the gospel to go forth and show mercy to others. Father, we pray this week as we are hosting winter relief, Lord God, we pray that your mercy would be extended through us to the precious image bearers of God who will be here starting tomorrow. Lord, we pray for rich opportunities to share your gospel, to show your kindness and your mercy. And Father, we ask as we do so that it would open up the eyes of people here and even those surrounding our church, Lord God, that it would open eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that all of our words and thoughts and deeds this week would result in praise, honor, and glory to you through Jesus Christ, the mercy of God. Amen. Let's stand together, and we'll conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you to receive God's blessing, and then let's go forth this week to be a blessing to others. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Go forth in the mercy of God and spread it to everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.